my God, and I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because of your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the benefit that it has for us as it teaches us about you, as it teaches us about your son, as it shows us who we are in comparison to you, how it shows us our great need of salvation. It shows us what a great and mighty and wonderful Savior you are. Father, as we contemplate the words of King David when he was at a sad and low place, a place of isolation, a place of depression, a place of psychological turmoil, a place of physical danger, how he turned his eye to you and sought to glory in you alone. Father, may we have our lives modeled after such faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning as we begin, the the subheading, verse 1 in the Hebrew text, um, Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That, That doesn't give us a lot to work with, if you know David's story. Because he spent a substantial amount of his time in the wilderness in Judah. It was kind of a go-to place to get away from a lot of the people who were after him, a lot of people who were trying to hurt him, a lot of people who were trying to kill him. It, it offered uh, some wooded areas, some mountainous areas, some caverns. There were a host of places, a host of opportunities for him to disappear and to be safe. And being a warrior that he was, he understood these kinds of things. And so what is it that he cries out? Given that we know that he's in the wilderness, that he's isolated, that he's alone, that he's likely in, in fear for his life, what what does he do? He he earnestly seeks God in the wilderness. That's what he does. Notice here in verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. Now, this is in the days of turmoil and sorrow. It's easy to seek the Lord when things are going exactly as they should. It's easy. It's easy to seek the Lord when you go to the doctor and the report he gives you is clean bill of health. Everything's fine. It's easy to seek the Lord when 
your family circumstances and your work circumstances and your social relationship, friend circumstances are all smoothing sailing. Smooth sailing. It's the way it needs to be. It's easy to seek the Lord when things on a national level in the country that you live in seem to be going just fine. When there's no wars or rumors of wars. It's easy. It becomes a lot more difficult to earnestly seek the Lord when you're in the midst of turmoil and sorrow. You might cry out to the Lord in despair, but hear me this morning, friends. Crying out to the Lord in despair is not the same thing as earnestly seeking the Lord. They're not the same. And so David is in a place of turmoil and sorrow, a place normally reserved for crying out in despair to God. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the bottom of myself. I have nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. God, I'm kind of frustrated with the circumstances you've dealt to me in my life, but I have nobody else to turn to. So I'm just going to cry out to you in despair. That's not what this language means. And so David is turning it all up on its head. He's turning it upside down. He's in this wilderness. He's in this place of isolation. He's in this time of turmoil and sorrow. And then he says, I shall seek you earnestly. Now, what gets lost in our English translation, the second half of the first part of verse 1, where it says, I shall seek you earnestly. That phrase is actually two words in Hebrew. One of the words being the, the, the word for you to reference back to God. The language of I shall seek earnestly, one word. One very robust verb in Hebrew. And what does it mean? It means to look for something early in such a way that you're seeking diligently for it. It means that you know you have to find this thing, whatever it is, super important, whatever this thing is, so important that you rise up early in the morning before everybody else gets up and you start your quest diligently seeking to find whatever that thing is. And you don't stop looking for it until you find it. There's, there's, there's kind of a, almost an anxiety behind this word. I've got to find whatever this thing is. And I don't care what else is going on right now. I'm going to seek after whatever this thing is. And in this case, that object is the Lord himself. Oh God, you are my God. And I shall early and earnestly and diligently with all of my effort and might seek for you. Nothing else matters. This is what's going on here with David. Why would he do that? What reasons does David give for seeking God in this way? So they're listed here. There's several of them. First, he seeks God in this way because his soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for you. Have you ever been really thirsty? Not just kind of thirsty, like really thirsty. 
like tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth, can't talk till you get some liquid in there thirsty. Anybody who's lived at least one summer in East Texas has felt this way. At least. Where you're just parched out, dry, cotton mouth, you just can't. This is the kind of language that David is using about the Lord. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. And that language of of yearning is the same kind of language for fainting. This is just, I'm overwhelmed by this. And then notice the environment that he places this thirsting in. In a drying and weary land where there is no water. Now, I want you to see this beautiful poetic thing that David is doing here. Lord, I seek earnestly, diligently, early, aggressively for you. Why? Because my soul thirsts for you. How, how much does it thirst for you? As if I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In other words, there's nothing in my current environment that will satisfy my thirst. There's nothing. There's no one else I can look to. There's no thing else that I can look to. When I observe the world that I am in, it offers me nothing that would satisfy my thirst. You and you only, Lord, can do this. He's cut off all other options of satisfaction in his life. The Lord Jesus uses King David's language in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. What does it say will happen to them? They will be, they'll be filled, they'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Not finding satisfaction in anything else. How do you become righteous? You become righteous by properly bearing the image of God. How do you properly bear the image of God? By God bringing you in by His grace and for His glory into covenant with Him. Having you turn away from your sins by faith and turn toward the glory of the risen Christ. That's how you become righteous. It's an alien righteousness, foreign righteousness. It is a righteousness given to us as a gracious gift of God in salvation. And those who hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness, for the Lord himself, they will be satisfied. It's almost like Jesus and David are saying the same thing. Amen. So why else is David diligently seeking God? He has this thirst for the Lord. But then also notice here in verse 2, because he sees the Lord in his sanctuary. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David has received a glimpse of the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of a covenant-making, 
covenant-keeping, sovereign king of the universe, God. He has been privy to the excellency of the greatness of God. And friends, I'm sorry, but once you've seen the excellence of the greatness of God, this does not compel you to yearn for Him, to thirst for Him, to seek diligently for Him once you've seen it, then I don't know what to tell you. David has seen the Lord's power. He's seen the Lord's glory. He knows there is no God but God. And I will seek for you diligently. What else is he going to find? It's a satisfying as the power and the glory of the one true God. Absolutely not. Why else? Why else is David so earnestly seeking after the Lord? Because he has come to understand, as it gets to verse 3, that God's loving kindness is better than life itself. As Paul said to the church at Corinth, consider... My brothers, what you were before you were called. Everyone in here who has an appropriate understanding of the gospel understands their condition in sin prior to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ saving them. Every person in here who has had a transformative interaction with Christ has seen that power and glory as it has worked its way out in the fact that they were a sinner separated from God, at enmity with the Lord, orphaned and abandoned in this world, no hope of God in this world at all. And yet God, by His grace and for His glory, according to His great mercy and the love with which He loved us, has drawn us near to Himself. His loving kindness, His mercy-filled love is better than life. And David understood that. He understood that. And he said, I'm going to earnestly and diligently seek for this kind of God that loves in this kind of way. Because notice what his response is to this loving kindness. My lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live. Great discomfort for most Baptists. I will lift my hands up in your name. My soul will be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. In other words, as with a good meal. What's really funny is there's kind of a, a play on words in the Hebrew text. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and fat. Now, anybody, this is East Texas. Anybody who's ever had a good steak, you know what makes a steak good? Thank you. It's the fat. Hashtag my doctor hates for me to say stuff like that out loud to people. But it's the fat. It's the well-marbled reality of the meat. I'm sorry for those of you in the room who are just wrong, but that's why steak tastes better than chicken. Chicken has less fat. It's just true. And David is basically saying, this loving kindness that you have is better than life. 
and it causes my lips to offer praise. It causes me to bless you. It causes me to lift up my hands and worship. My soul is satisfied. Now notice we're, we're starting to kind of run this parallelism about the satisfaction that he finds in the Lord, this yearning and longing in this, this, this way that only God can, can delight him. And he's using more aggressive language and he's comparing it to sitting down to a, to a supreme and a great meal. I don't know if you're a foodie in that way. Our family's kind of foodie families. We love good food. That's what we just love, good food. And there are great memories that we have that circle around incredible food. And those of you who've had conversations with us about, hey, look, tell me about this thing or tell me about that or tell me about this way. Invariably, if we're sharing with you a wonderful memory from our family's past, there's going to be a story about some food in there. It's just going to happen. And that's what David is saying here. He's saying, listen, my soul is... Now, remember, he was in a dry and weary land with no water. He was parched. His tongue was stuck to the top of his mouth. He was thirsting to the point of death. He had no satisfaction whatsoever. And he went from that to feasting on one of the finest meals he's ever had. This is what God has done for him. This is what understanding the glory of the Lord has done for him. This is what seeing God's mercy-filled love has done for him. It has satisfied his soul in such a way that he no longer remembers his tongue being stuck to the roof of his mouth. Now he is contemplating life with a full belly and satisfaction from a great meal. And you know what? His circumstances have not changed. He is still in the wilderness in Judah. Why else does David earnestly seek for the Lord according to this text? Next, he remembers the Lord when he's on his bed. When I, when I remember you on my bed, and I meditate on you in the night watches. I want to kind of pause and clear some things up because this sort of language makes Western Christians very uncomfortable because we don't really like to to talk about the notion of meditation. David is not speaking about far Eastern mystical meditation. That's not what he's talking about. David was Middle Eastern Yes, he'd have been closer to that culture than the culture that we have now, but it's not the same kind of thing. The Hebrew mindset for this idea of meditation is to dwell on and to think on something in a profoundly deep way. It's not the idea of meditation of trying to get your mind empty. Instead, it's the notion of meditation of trying to get your mind full. I'm trying to fill my mind with the depth of who God is. And he's actually shifting from reasons why he seeks God to how he seeks God. And if you are earnestly seeking the Lord and it does not include deep, meaningful contemplation into who God actually is, you will not ever really reach the place of earnestly seeking God. 
You have to do the hard work of contemplating the fullness of the being of God himself. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's hard. The reason why most people don't do it is it's hard work. It's very hard work. Because we have a lot of faulty notions about who we think God is and what we think God is like. And then when we delve into the scriptures and we allow the scriptures to wash over our twisted minds and to begin to correct our wayward thinking about God, we have to abandon some of the things that we have pushed onto the image of God and instead allow God's image to then be pushed on to us. And David says, you know what, I'll do it all the way up into the middle of the night. The night watches. The time when things are most dangerous and I should be getting some rest while other people watch my back for me. Instead, I'll stay awake. And while they're watching my back, I'll seek the face of God. This is what he's saying. And then notice another reason why David is seeking God so earnestly is he makes the declaration that God has been his help. Verse seven, for you have been my help. And then again, we talked about it a few weeks ago because it was in a previous psalm. But notice this, this almost motherly kind of language that God uses, uh, that David uses about God. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. You know, in the springtime, it's coming up soon. Birds will make those nests. And then you'll hear the chirping. The little birds. Some of you were going to use the word squawking, but you know, let's let's try to enjoy what happens in nature a little bit. Chirping of those little birds. And do you know why they feel the freedom to make all that noise? Because here's the deal: they can do nothing for themselves. They can't fly yet. They can't gather their own food. They certainly can't fight off any enemies that want to try to crawl up in that nest and eat them. But do you know why they feel the freedom to make all of that noise? It's because there's another much bigger, stronger, greater bird that most of the time is there with the wings over them, protecting them and keeping them safe. And they feel all the freedom in the world, even if the snake is right there to just squawk and chirp and make all the ruckus that they want to make because they are not worried one bit about that enemy that's trying to creep up on them in the wilderness of Judah. They will make a declaration of the glory of the one that's protecting them. That's what they do. And this is what David is saying. He says, listen, you've been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. The enemy's right there and I'm going to chirp at him because I know that you take care of me. I know that you keep me safe. I know that you will not let me be handed over to the whims of my enemy. That you, God, are my victory. And while you're there hovering over me, I will declare it loud with my voice. Why else? As David sought so earnestly for the Lord. As he closes this particular section in verse 8, he makes a declaration that his soul clings to God. My soul clings to you. 
Now, I don't want to get into the, the depths of it, but there's an interesting prepositional thing that's happening there. The translation, in most translations, my soul clings to you. And, and, and in English, that's the most sensible way to say that. That's how we understand that. We, we, we note that clinging has an object, something that it's grasped onto. So we cling to things. But the, the Hebrew word that's used there where we translate to is actually best translated and best understood as the word after. My soul clings after you. Which sounds really weird in English. Almost doesn't make any sense. But David is trying to create a picture of submission to the sovereignty of God. When you think about clinging to something or to someone, usually it's face to face. Somebody's really sad that somebody's leaving, so they're clinging, they don't want to let them go, they're face to face. Or somebody's gotten some really bad news and they just want to be encouraged. So they cling to one another, usually face to face. But instead, I want you to get a picture in your mind of the child that is afraid. And the parent that's going to protect the child is standing in front of the child in the face of that thing that is causing danger for the child, where's the child? Clinging to the back of the leg, usually. And the one that is the protector, the arms are free. The protector's not clinging to the child. The child is clinging after him. Face hidden, scrunched down. My soul clings after you. I'm not doing a thing in this situation. I'm not trusting in my own power because I have none. I'm not trusting in my own strength because I have none. I am yielding to your superiority and your sovereignty and your greatness and your majesty. And I, like a small child, am clinging to the back. I cling after you. It's a beautiful thing. And he repeats this notion, this idea. doesn't use the same words, but the idea of this thirsting and this, this longing that we saw much earlier in verse 1 finally reaching full parallelism in this poem. Thirst is a longing. My soul thirsts for you. There's this longing that David has. My soul clings to you. My soul clings after you. Clinging is a longing that's been satisfied. I needed you. I wanted you. I was trying to find you. I was diligently seeking for you and I found you and I'm clinging to you. There's a satisfaction that is there. David has gone full circle. There was a longing and a longing that has now been fulfilled in his soul. It is beautiful. And I would ask and encourage you this morning, is that how you view Jesus? Do you long for him? You thirst for him. 
Do you see his power and glory as in a sanctuary? Do you understand that his mercy-filled love is better than life? Do you remember and meditate upon him and think deeply on him even into the night? Has he been your help as one who brings about the shadow of the protective wing? Do you cling after him and find your longing fulfilled in him? And if not, why not? And then David turns his attention just the last couple of verses of the psalm to those who seek his life. Those who seek his life. And notice the way that they're seeking his life. They seek his life to destroy it. But the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to what? Destroy. That's what the enemy does. There is a a magnificent parallelism between this psalm and the preaching of Jesus about the kingdom throughout a variety of his sermons. You see it kind of just woven through thematically in a lot of the public discourse that Jesus had. He talks about longing. He talks about thirsting. He talks about being satisfied. He uses the language of the birds of the air. He moves through a lot of these same kinds of metaphors. And then when he gets to the one who is the enemy, he speaks directly to it that there are those who seek my life to destroy it. Notice what their judgment is. They will go to the depths of the earth. They will go to the depths of the earth. That's the Hebrew notion of the lowest places. That's the Hebrew concept of Sheol. There's a whole lot there that we don't have time to to unfold. But as Hebrew theology developed, that is not what you wanted your eternal judgment to be. You did not want to go into the lowest place. You did not go into the deepest depths. You did not want to enter into the segment of Sheol that was reserved for those who were not in covenant relationship with the Lord. You didn't want that. However it fleshed itself out and whatever it looked like and whatever elements were added along the way from the theological development of the notion, that was about the worst possible reality that a person could have. And you didn't want that. And he said, those who seek to destroy my life, they will go to the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. Now, David is not usually deemed much as a prophet David is not usually deemed much in that way. David is viewed as the king. He's viewed as a poet. He's viewed as the shepherd. There's a lot of things that we give to David. But what happened to David's enemies that were causing him to hide in the wilderness in Judah? They went to the lowest places. And they fell in deliverance to the sword. How did King Saul die? How did he die? By the sword. 
and all of those who were allied with him and the enemies of David that fought against him. It speaks about it in multiple places in first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. Their bodies became a feast for the beasts of the field. David said, those who seek my life, they're going to go to the lowest places. They're going to be delivered over to the sword and they're going to be prey for the foxes. Prophetically announcing what was going to happen to the very people who were trying to kill him right then in that moment. Again, we don't dub David as a prophet often, but he nailed that one. Precisely almost with great precision. And then notice what he says at the end of declaring what the judgment is going to be for those who are not seeking the Lord in the way he is, because there's listen, if you're seeking God's anointed one and his death, you by default are not seeking God. Is it fair? Somebody threat say it's fair, fair. If you're seeking to kill God's anointed, you are not seeking to live in the will of God. So David is basically saying all those people who are not seeking you the way I am, this is their judgment. Because if they were seeking you the way that I am, they wouldn't be trying to kill me right now. He lays out their judgment and then notice what he says about after their judgment. But the king will rejoice in God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. For everyone who swears by him will glory. Friend, no matter how difficult your circumstances are in the moment, if you swear by the Lord, if you earnestly seek him, if you long to repent of sin, if you long to be broken over those things that are not pleasing to the Lord, you open yourselves up to these wonders that can be found in the Lord and in the Lord only. You will glory in him. And notice the promise that is then made that the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Friends, those who seek to stand against the ways of the Lord, their end is a ruinous end. They may seem to have victory for a season. They may seem to have victory for a while. They may seem to have the upper hand in the short term, but our God is not blind and he is a just God. And unless God does a great work in their hearts, the way he did a great work in our hearts. And they continue to pursue a life that is not in keeping with bearing the image of God. Their mouths will be stopped. And you know what? That might not happen. While you're wandering around in the wilderness of Judah. David's story, we know how it fleshes out. He eventually ends up on the throne. His enemies eventually are defeated and overrun. We see that. But there is not necessarily a temporal circumstantial guarantee that you yourself are going to come out of your Judah wilderness and everything's going to work itself out just fine in this life. That's not the promise. 
It happens a lot, but it's not the promise. The promise is that eventually the judge of all the earth will do what is right and he will merit out full justice to the enemies of God. But like many from the Old Testament and some from the New Testament, you might not see it in your day. But even still, even still, notice, notice, David is certain that this will happen. He just doesn't know when it will happen. And notice he references the king in the third person. He's saying, hey, hopefully it's me, but the king's going to rejoice whether it's me or the next one. This is all going to get worked out right, whether it happens in my life or somebody else's life. God's going to be a righteous God. And what am I going to do in the meantime while I'm still stuck out here in this wilderness? I'm going to rejoice. That's what I'm going to do. And why am I going to rejoice? Because my God is already victorious. Even if I don't see it. Even if I don't feel it. Even if it's not how my circumstances tell me life actually is. I know there's a greater reality than my circumstances. And while I'm hiding in this wilderness in Judah, fleeing from my enemies, trying to stay alive, I'm going to rejoice. Because this is how great my God is. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for how good you are. Thank you, Lord that you call upon us to diligently seek you, to cling after you. Father, forgive us when we're satisfied in everything else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are a mercy-filled God and that you are worthy of of our worship and praise. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.